Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking to Tim Shorak, a journalist at The Nation magazine who covers predominantly Korea and Japan. The first thing that's very interesting about Tim is that these are actually the countries of his youth and young adult life. He was raised in Japan uh, ever since he was a small child and then spent his teenage years in Korea. I think this really lends itself to how he sees uh, politics in these countries and why oftentimes his journalism has acted on behalf of the people of Korea and Japan and really pushed back on the narratives that are mostly seen in US press, which are those which advocate for war, which advocate for the continuation of American presence, uh, both military and political in these countries, and in general, um, repeat uh, verbatim information provided by either the CIA, uh, the Department of Defense, or various think tanks um, designed to make sure that American empire in Asia uh, is continued in perpetuity. So that is all very interesting. The other thing that's very interesting uh, for me in talking to Tim is he is a great bridge uh, in terms of how I think about um, progressive issues. I, um, in talking to Tim, hear, heard terms that I don't usually think about when I think about progressive issues, things like the military-industrial complex and think tanks and the Cold War, these terms that, at least for my generation, we would probably associate with the 1950s um, and battles that don't seem very connected to the lives we live now. And in talking to Tim, it's very clear uh, it's very clear that you need to be reminded if, if you are someone who's progressive or concerned about war or concerned about um, the way the world is going, that we lost all these battles. So even though they're very old, relatively speaking, uh, they're all battles that we lost. And so if a new path forward for the world will eventually emerge, um, these will be some of the bedrock issues that we'll need to address. Should America have an endless presence in Asia? What does an end of American empire look like? Should we give up a geostrategic position if it is responding to the democratic will of the people of Korea, in the case of their peace process, or Japan, in the case of Okinawan citizens saying enough emphatically to the US military presence on their island? Um, Tim's narrative is very different than what you would read in the New York Times or see on MSNBC, but I think, uh, at least for my generation, more and more of us have come to see them as uh, the same way that a previous generation might have seen media reporting uh, or sticking to the script of what they were told to report uh, during the Vietnam War. Um, and in his language, he doesn't really try to talk about policy, um, though I've, at times when we chat, it becomes very nuanced and granular. But mostly what one gets from talking to Tim, uh, a sense that there's a right and there's a wrong, and that's all there is to it. And it doesn't matter if it's all part of some grand game, you shouldn't be playing anyway. 
And I hope that uh, for those who agree, it is a useful um, tool in how they talk about progressive issues, how they interact with Korea and Japan. But for those who maybe still really like Rachel Maddow or um, are very respectful and interested in what the New York Times has to say, that Tim's critique can at least offer some nuance and perspective, not only as a seasoned journalist and reporter, uh, but also as someone who's lived and befriended many individuals in both these countries. If you like what we're doing, feel free to reach out. I'm at matt at asiaarttours.com. You can email me and I'll be sure to reply. You can visit asiaarttours.com to learn more about the unique projects we're trying to do, bringing together artists, curious travelers, academics, and thinkers from all over the world um, to Asia. And if you're interested in chatting with me, I'm always looking for new people to talk about some of the issues and problems facing our world and how art or new perspectives maybe will be a tool to bring us to a better and new future. I'm wondering if you could tell us just about your childhood, what was it like growing up in Asia, and why did it um, leave such an impression on you? My parents uh, were working for a religious organization, churches, and came to Japan. Missionaries slash social workers in about 19, in 1947, so two years after the war ended. And I was... Um, brought to Japan after being born in the U.S. in 1951. I was brought to Japan when I was about one years old and there in Tokyo until uh, I was eight, eight or nine. And so I spent, you know, my early years in Tokyo going to uh, nursery school and Japanese school and then to an American school. We moved to Seoul, South Korea, where my father did the same kind of work. My mother also did in, in Korea after the Korean War. A few years later, we were back in Tokyo, where my father worked on a university, large university called International Christian University in the late 60s. And so, and that was during the Vietnam War. And so I was very, became very attuned to the anti-war movement, especially in Japan, because, you know, as you know, Japan used by the United States as a base to bomb and attack Vietnam during the Indochina Wars. And so there came to be a lot of opposition in Japan to the war and the use of their bases by the U.S. planes. And of course, you know, people in Japan, you know, remembered the uh, terrible bombing of 1945 of practically all the Japanese cities were wiped out by firebombs. And, and uh, so this is what the U.S. was doing to Vietnam and people felt the war was unjust and didn't want their ports and their air bases used to bomb Vietnam. And so there was big struggles, citizens and students joining together to block U.S. bases and demonstrate against the Japanese government support for the war in Vietnam. So that was all very, you know, eye-opening to me. But I, I think that the most significant sort of political experience 
when I was growing up during that time was living in Seoul during the time of the popular uprising against Sigmund Rhee in 1960 and kind of witnessing it as a nine-year-old. And, you know, I was always reading the newspapers very closely and, and I really kept track of what was going on. And to me, that was an amazing thing to see, you know, a, a people rise up against an unpopular leader and overthrow him by taking to the streets and fighting it out with, you know, cops and, you know, getting, you know, getting public support for what they were doing. And the word revolution never really meant anything to me until I, until I witnessed that. And uh, so I always remembered you know, 419, 1960, and what happened on, during that time, that helped uh, sort of build, build my understanding of, of what was going on in Asia, you know, with, with ordinary people. Later on, of course, in Japan, seeing the anti-war movement, you know, was the same thing. So, I, you know, I, I really witnessed, you know, citizens standing up for, for their rights as a country, their, you know, their democracy. And uh, so that, that all, you know, left me with a big impression. And, and of course, during the Vietnam War, I was like any other American um, male at the time, I was subject to the draft and had to make a decision about, you know, what I wanted to do if I wanted to go to Vietnam or not. And I did not want to go to Vietnam. So, you know, I became very active in the anti-draft movement and the anti-war movement. And so, you know, all those things, you know, formed me, you know, formed my, you know, understanding and my intellect as an impressionable young person. And so when I came back to the United States when I was age 18 to go to college, you know, I never really had much experience in the U.S. And I came back to America at a time of, you know, the, you know, really intensity and fervor about the war and anti-government feeling and, and people were really feeling alienated from the, you know, government and society. And it was, it was a strange time to kind of come back to America. And it took me a while to adjust to being here and learning the ways of America. Not long after I, after I went to college and spent a couple of years kind of roaming around the U.S. Uh, doing odd jobs and minimum wage jobs and sort of trying to understand the politics of America and what was going on. I went back to graduate school to learn about the Asia I had grown up in during the Cold War. And I went to the University of Oregon and I began to really follow what was going on in Korea at the time. And so, you know, I, I got and I wanted to be a journalist, you know, from an early age. And so, you know, after I got out of graduate school with this a master's degree in uh, Asian studies with a specialty on Korea, I really wanted to go there and, you know, learn more about what was going on on the ground in Korea at the time, you know, the late 70s and early 80s, you know, there was this anti-democracy, you know, pro-democracy movement against the authoritarian governments of Park Chung-hee and Chun Doo-hwan. And so I was, you know, I went to South Korea in the early 80s and I, you know, went there quite a few times as a journalist and writing about the movement, the democratic and the labor movement in South Korea and Sort of my, you know, I just kind of took off as a as a journalist, you know, from there, and um, you know, it wasn't always easy to write about Asia because you know, it's, then as now, American media is not that interested in in the reality of, of Asia. They kind of left it behind after Vietnam, and so, uh, you know, I, I, it, it wasn't always easy to find publications that were interested in, you know, running stories about the labor movement in South Korea or, or the repression in South Korea, uh, 
anti-base movement in Japan. Uh, but, you know, I, I started writing about it and I uh, ended up, you know, writing for a newspaper, writing for a business newspaper. So I spent many years as a, as a journalist, you know, covering both politics and, you know, business. And, um, you know, that's where I sort of learned my craft. There's a famous quote from Obama's former deputy national security advisor that pissed everyone off, where he called the, uh, the, the Washington think tank network, defense advisors, and military industrial complex sort of a, a blob. Does the blob exist? Everyone's going to Harvard or Yale. How do they become part of groupthink and just conventional wisdom? And if you don't want to become part of the blob, where are some other areas, scholars, or writers you can look to? Well, it, I never really liked that term blob. I mean, it's a, it's kind of it's sort of innocuous in a way, and I don't think it really describes the insidious nature of these think tanks as, as it should. Because, and you know, I began to run across a lot of these different kinds of lobbies that some, you know, in my case would represent corporations, U.S. corporations doing business in one country, such as Indonesia, right? One of the first think tanks I really uh, started looking at was, was uh, called the uh, American Indonesia Society. And it sounded very benign, you know, like a society, and they would sponsor, uh, you know, visits to museums where Indonesian artifacts were, and they'd sponsor, you know, visits of Indonesian officials or cultural groups and so on. But when you started digging carefully into who was gave the money for these organizations, in this case, this society, it was, you know, large multinational corporations that were invested in Indonesia. And their purpose of creating this organization was to basically provide a kind of public sheen uh, to a country that had a very poor reputation in human rights. After all, Indonesia you know, until the early 90s was a one-person dictatorship under Suharto, and a very cruel one at that. And some multi American multinationals were really profiting, you know, off off the, the uh, from their relationship with this dictatorship. And so, you know, when running the organizations like that, and like, you know, clearly their their public persona was very different than what they really did. And so they, you know, they would push for policies, of course, that benefited. Uh, you know, multinational companies and during, like during the Clinton administration, for example, um, you know, there, there was a kind of focus on uh, penal, you know, countries that didn't observe international labor rights and didn't respect uh, worker rights, you know, should not get, you know, certain kinds of trade privileges that other countries that did respect labor rights receive. And so uh, there was, you know, an investigation of Indonesia labor rights by the Clinton administration and these corporations that belong to this so-called society, you know, poured in money to, and, and, you know, put a lot of influence to try to block this investigation. And they actually succeeded and, you know, in persuading the Clinton administration that, you know, the labor rights were acceptable in Indonesia. So you, you, I began to see how they, they, you know, how these organizations worked. And then you start opening your eyes and you focus on other issues. And there's always another organization that does similar kinds of things. And so, like, for example, there's something called, you know, what's, what's called the U.S. Uh, U.S. Taiwan Business Council. Their whole reason for being is to support arms sales by American corporations to Taiwan. 
and to make it easier to sell arms to Taiwan. And, you know, th there's organizations like this for, you know, for every country. And then there's these big think tanks like the Center for Strategic International Studies, which has been around for years, uh, you know, which is funded by, you know, some big governments like the U.S. government, Pentagon funds it, but as well as the Japanese government, some other foreign governments, and many, many arms sellers, uh, makers of mil military weapons. And, you know, they, 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 they're, they're a major think tank now on, you know, East Asia and Japan and Korea. And they have tremendous influence, but it's the kind of place if you're a young, you know, say you're a, you know, Korean student, you're studying at Harvard or Stanford, and you want to kind of make it in the Washington world, uh, you want to make it as a policy person or something, you come and, you know, those are the kind of jobs that are available. And so, you know, it, it kind of uh, helps cultivate a kind of class that becomes part of these these think tanks, and I think a lot of a lot of young people are taken in by that because you know suddenly they're in an organization where they sponsor talks by the president of South Korea or the prime minister of Japan or the you know leading leading figures like that, and it feels very impressive. But what the real purpose of these organizations are uh, in the in the in the case of CSIS is to is to you know, basically, you know, uh, support the whole military structure that the U.S. has in Asia and support arms sales. They're backed by Boeing and, you know, a lot of these large uh, military contractors as, as well as by governments. And so, you know, their mission is to, you know, sort of push for these kinds of policies that, in, in, in their view, you know, support the national security of the United States. And, and you know, unfortunately, you know, what, what benefits the national security of the United States doesn't always benefit people in those countries or doesn't always benefit people of America. So, you know, I think, you know, it, it's, it's hard for young people that are, you know, getting educated and coming, you know, coming of age and trying to find their way in Washington, especially to avoid those kind of organizations, because there's so many of them and there's so many internships and jobs that they, you know, they start their career there. But they're they're working they're really working for the military industrial complex and that's unfortunate and I think that it can be a learning experience and you can move and do something else but a lot of people just get sucked into that as a as a career and so you know you have to look elsewhere I mean and, and the thing is a lot of organizations that made you know support like you know focusing on human rights in Indonesia for example there's organizations that do that they're not they don't get huge amounts of money. So you have to kind of like decide for your life, you know, how you, you know, how you want to proceed. If you want to make big bucks and have a, you know, real, you know, well-paid job, you know, you can go one way, but if you, if you want to kind of find your way and, you know, do something that that's for the benefit of, for the broader segments of the population and support the improvement of human rights or this, you know, support a situation where, you know, labor rights can be respected you got to work for other kinds of organizations or work in the media if you can, and, you know, right, you know, focus on, you know, exposing what you want to, what you want to expose. But, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not easy because there's so much money poured into the so-called blob. I often get extremely frustrated with people who ostensibly are sympathetic to international progressivism or leftism. People are talking about labor rights or socialism or, communism or any sort of uh, progressive uh, political movement that 
strategically, it makes so much sense to become more involved or to have more knowledge about Asia. Um, I, I'm just wondering if you could, could comment on that. Is there a lot of strategic sense for young activists to learn more about what's going on in Asia? And have you uh, encountered similar uh, frustration from Asian activists about a lack of um, relationship to their counterparts in America or the EU. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I th although I think it's I think it's starting to change. I think there's getting to be some strong relationships built between you know political activists, peace activists in the U.S. and <clears throat> Japan, Korea, Okinawa, other places. And that's been you know that's been going on for a long time. I mean, it's you know during the Vietnam War there was very strong you know solidarity between organizations say in Japan and the US that opposed the Vietnam War. You know, I got to know a lot of those people in Japan when I was there in the 80s. I'm still, you know, friends with them. I mean, the people that I was doing, you know, I I've been part of that movement for for my whole adult life really. And and you know, there's there's movements going on all over the place. I mean, you know, right now in Japan, you know, a lot of the focus is on Okinawa and the unfairness of Okinawa being the less than one percent of the Japanese landmass, you know, but it's mm. where seventy percent of American bases are, and they're even expanding the U.S. Marine base there and destroying a beautiful bay, environmental, environmentally sensitive bay, to make way for a new Marine forward base for the U.S. Marines. And you know, the the whole island has voted against it many times to support the leaders who are against it. But the Japanese government is doing this on, you know, building this base on for the United States, and so that's a very powerful movement. But you know, again, it, they're not, you know, heavily funded. It's like it's like grassroots organizing. You know, uh, people have to dedicate, you know, time and effort, and and you know, sometimes you have to work in some other job and you know, dedicate your other time to working on that movement. And the same is true in Korea, Jeju Island. There's a big movement against the Navy base there. It's that's been was built about 20 years ago, and uh, you know that that's been that's been part of you know Korean political culture for a while. Um, you know, everywhere there's a labor movement, and so you know there's lots of opportunities to get plugged into what's going on. I mean, the last time I was in in South Korea, I I, I spent a day at this place called Camp Casey, which is the the only U.S. Army base that's close to the DMZ now. It's very close to North Korea. It's actually a, a, a large artillery base, and um, you know there's there's a whole history at this at this base and the town surrounding it of of um, you know military prostitution that was organized by the Korean government as well as by the U.S. military, and um, you know there was you know hundreds of thousands of of women over the years you know were basically you know served as as prostitutes. Around the U.S. military bases, and you know, there's this whole history of this of this kind of an in industry there that was really damaging to to women, and 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 that they uh, now they're trying to like you know uh, people in that town and, and around that base are trying to sort of you know bring back this history, and so people understand the nature of what American bases were like in Korea because you know they were there ostensibly to protect the Korean people. You know, from a North Korean invasion, but there's this kind of sordid history of this for of this military prostitution that 
a lot of young women who were in you know poverty and didn't have much money were you know kind of brought into not always not necessarily forced but it was like all that was available to lots of women at the time and there's a whole history there and so you know and and, and the same is true you know industrial um, history and you know history of various companies in South Korea and multinational companies that have moved back and forth and you know there. There's been a lot of focus, uh, you know, in, in America for the last 15, 20 years about, you know, labor rights and, you know, buying, you know, university students not wanting to have their university buy clothes from factories, you know, where there's slave wages or, you know, environmental, no environmental protections and no labor protections. And so, you know, I think this, these kinds of movements are, are starting to gel and, you know, having, having an impact. But you know, people really have to. You have to really look for them, and 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 you know, and go to where they are. And it's hard for young people. Denny Tamaki, just it seems such a fascinating figure. Father is this literal ghost of imperialism who abandons him when he's uh, a young boy, uh, becomes the first uh, mixed race legislator um, in Japanese history. And has this incredible campaign against an extremely well-funded, powerful opposition in terms of defeating uh, Abe's selected uh, candidate um, in the political race there. I'm wondering, just broadly, if could you talk about Denny Tamake and um, what he represents as a possible alternative future for both Okinawa and Japan? Well, I think what's interesting about him, and I, you know, I met him about uh, two months ago, I guess, when he was in Washington in his first visit as governor, and I'd met the previous governor several times on Aga, and he, you know, he was here on many occasions. Um, you know, these are really brave, brave guys. You know, they, 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 and they're fighting for their own people. What's interesting about Tamaki is that, you know, he's really put the focus on democracy. You know, how can how can we say how can the United States say it's supporting democracy in Japan with its military alliance when we ignored the democratic wishes of the Okinawan people not to build this base and not to expand the U.S. Marines and for the Marines to get out of there. They've been there for 70 years. You know, how can it be a democracy when we don't respect that? It's not a de- it's not democracy. That's the plain and simple answer. And And so, you know, he's posed this question, but, you know, unfortunately... Uh, is is not really an issue for many American law- lawmakers and you know you know officials. They they want to maintain U.S. power, and and there's this you know it's, so breaking through that is is difficult. And you know I think at some point is it's, it's going to create another crisis with U.S. Japan relations. This just can't go on forever. But you know the, Abe is just strong arming them, using his police forces to to restrict the demonstrations and the protests, but we're not respecting democracy. And it shows a, a real hypocrisy. It's slowly becoming more Japanese are certainly becoming aware of it and are thinking, trying to think differently about it. And, you know, and I think hopefully some Americans are, but it's really hard to change that whole perception of, of this, you know, wonderful idea of, you know, our forces are there to protect democracy and, you know, keep trade flowing and, you know, that that's that's good for our security and so on. But we don't really see the underside of, of what this does. I really take 
a lot of inspiration from the from the movement in Okinawa and the courage of these people to continue to this fight day by day against great odds. And I think it's a real lesson to the to the rest of the world of people that do believe in democracy and want want their democratic rights respected. They're not against America. They're not against you know all U.S. forces being in Japan. They 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 just want you know, to have their land back and not have their whole island occupied by the U.S. after 70 years after World War II, it seems to be a very just just cause, a just request. How has Denny been received by people who should be supporting him? And if there is, in fact, hypocrisy, where is it coming from and why? Pretty much as I described, I mean, when he was here, he, you know, he met with a senior official at the State Department, repeated his opposition to the expansion of this expansion of the Marine base. And they and they met with him and basically patted him on the back and say, oh, you know, thank We want to thank Okinawa for your contribution to supporting peace and democracy in Asia. You know, that's their response. Uh, But they don't they're not listening. Nobody in Congress is listening. And uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to take, you know, a, another crisis, another, somebody being murdered or raped or something, that, an outcry in Japan. It's a terrible thing to say, but that's the only thing that really seems to, you know, get the governments, you know, involved in like trying to resolve this issue. So, I mean, I think he was received like most other governors are. I mean, you know, there, there there's, you know, journalists that come, but people that have influence uh, in, in Congress or in Washington aren't interested in, in this issue. They they're, they're, they want to keep expanding American power in Asia and militarily, economically. And, and you know, the, they don't see Okinawa as being, you know, it's, it's not affecting them. So, you know, so I think the reception was the same as always. And um, in, in terms of Korea, this in the New York Times, this is where the think tanks come again. Because that one story I wrote, really dissecting the New York Times reporting of this report by CSIS on, you know, allegedly saying that, you know, North Korea is allegedly, you know, continuing to build their nuclear arsenal where there's been an where they've told Trump they're going to stop. Well, actually, there's no agreement yet. There's no agreement between North Korea and the United States to end its nuclear program. There's pledges to work toward that. But uh, there's also pledges for the United States to work toward uh, normalizing relations with North Korea and creating a peace process between the two Koreas. And that, you know, they haven't, the U.S. hasn't, you know, moved toward normalizing with, with North Korea. And, and so the think tanks put out these reports that sort of obscure all those issues and make it and they make people believe and the newspapers actually run this story, you know, well, North Korea is cheating on this agreement. Well, you can't cheat on an agreement if there's no agreement. And and so it, it's a kind of sleight of hand. But the fact is, you know, you have this very powerful and well-funded think tank, uh, you know, supplying their information and their reports to this the largest, most widely read newspaper in the world with a ton of money. And that's what everybody reads. And so that's, you know, that's, you know, New York Times is a newspaper of record. And, and, and it sort of sets the storyline. And that's what people believe. And that's actually in Washington. That's pretty much how, you know, 
I'll talk to my doctor, you know, saying we're, 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 you know, Trump really got snookered by Kim Jong-un. I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the conventional wisdom, because that's what they read in the, in the mass media. And the mass media completely depends on these think tanks for their information and for their interpretation and analysis. If you read the New York Times coverage of Korea over the last two years, uh, you will find that every major story high up in the story, there's always a kind of nut graph and a nut, you know, a key quote from somebody that is knowledgeable that that they they use to sort of set the tone for the article. And you know, nine times out of ten, it's somebody from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. CSIS, it's, it's, you know, Victor Cha or, you know, somebody else from that organization, you know, giving the line. And so, you, you know, it's, it's how the powerful, you know, keep their, you know, we talk about state media and North Korea and Cuba and places like that. Well, we, you know, we have this like media that's supplied by the military industrial complex and they're, they're almost like it's, 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 it's mirror image of state media elsewhere. I mean, they, they report what you know the, the state would like you to hear. That's where where the importance of independent media. You know, the nation is not funded like these other publications, but you know, people read us. And so, when my story appeared about the dissecting the New York Times, you know, ran on the front page the Hankyode newspaper, a progressive paper in South Korea, ran a big story about my story, and then they used that as a way to dig deeper into this specific report that the New York Times was depending on. And they, they you know, wrote a very strong editorial about, you know, how the uh, think tank world and the media seem to be, you know, sort of, you know, stifling the Korea peace process. But, I mean, that's the importance of independent media, you know, to, to try to, you know, break through those cracks. You know, as Leonard Cohen sang in one of his great songs, you know, there's a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in. You know, the, the crack is, is media that's not dependent on big corporations and defense contractors, um, but, you know, is, is funded by the people and funded by individuals. Well, much like, you know, that's the story of Ankyori in South Korea. It was started by journalists who were purged from the media by the Pak Chung-hee and Chun uh, governments and, you know, couldn't work in journalism until there was democratic system in South Korea. So, and there's new, lots of publications like that sprouting up, new organizations, media organizations in the U.S. now, like ProPublica, for example, you know, they're funded by, you know, various organizations that, that, that are progressive and, you know, just trying to create an alternative to the, to the big media. And, 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 and that's very important. So the new South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, um, you've written uh, quite a bit about his sunshine policy and how he's challenging Chaibol, uh, these large, uh, sprawling firms like Samsung that go into so many different industries and try to uh, monopolize them. I'm wondering for South Koreans who seem to be more hopeful, do they see a link between Moon Jae-in and figures like Bernie Sanders? Do they see this connection between pushing back against Chaibol or monopolies and uh, the maintaining or expanding of uh, democracy? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, to generalize in that sense, but uh, I would say that, um, you know, I, I think, yeah, when, when I was in South Korea and actually living there in 2017, 
Um, you know, and, and when I was here last year, you know, there, there was a lot of people in the progressive side, you know, talked about Bernie Sanders a lot, and they were looking at the U.S. with some hope, thinking that he was somebody who would be different than, you know, than your normal uh, U.S. president if you want. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, Moon Jae-in, you know, grew out of the democratic movement. And, uh, and ironically, given what your question was, I mean, he's, his, his popularity has actually dropped recently because while he did want to come in and, you know, at the beginning of his term to start, you know, re reforming and, and taking steps to curb the power of the J-Ball, which, you know, as conglomerates, in South Korea, the, the concentration of industry in South Korea has always been uh, phenomenal. I mean, there's more concentration in Korea, Korean industry than almost any uh, capitalist society on earth. I mean, it's really incredible how much power inside that country these individual J-Bull like Samsung, Hyundai, um, and so on have in terms of all the industries that are part of one, one group. People support Moon Jae-in uh, because you know, they wanted to get rid of these, this authoritarian government of Bakunhe before and corrupt government, and they want to get rid of this, this, these old style uh, you know, uh, conservative conservatives and and that's why Buckingham hey, was impeached and you know there was this wave as you know the candlelight revolution where people were standing up demanding that she be removed and you know Moon Jae-in rode in on the wave of that so he got elected but a big part of his program was to defuse the tension with North Korea between the U.S. and North Korea and to create a peace process and I think that's where people really you know support him but I think he's lost some popularity because the you know the Korean economy, there's a lot of South Korean economy. There's a lot of issues, uh, particularly uh, as it affects youth, and there's a lot of youth unemployment and underemployment, and a lot of work that's uh, you know less than full time, a lot of part time work, and people not getting benefits, and and you know so there's a kind of you know lower rungs of the economy, people are having a lot of difficulty in that, you know that part of the aim of curbing the jable was to try to alleviate those kind of situations. But uh, I think Moon needs these conglomerates to support his North Korea policy because they, you know, they want to go back to investing in North Korea like they once did. And so I think uh, there's a kind of, you know, uh, splits within his administration about, you know, how to move. And, and, and there's a lot of criticism now about that he hasn't moved, you know, his reforms so-called have not move fast enough. But overall, I think, you know, South Korea, in terms of its progressive politics and the way people organize and the way that people mobilize and use the internet for mobilization is way ahead of what we have here in the U.S. And I think people in Japan are actually, you know, sort of learning from South Korea in terms of mobilizing people. And I think we all should learn from that. I'm really, every time I go there, I'm really amazed at, at the level of organizing and how, how things are, you know, especially, you know, looking at, you know, I have a long association with the labor movement in, in South Korea and, and you know, anti-war activists and, and just the way they, you know, can get out there and mobilize like a lot, you know, lots of people, uh, you know, to get into demonstrations, block the streets when they need to and, you know, raise the public issues and use the media and use the internet 
and social media to to you know get their issues out there, and and that's that's impressive. Uh, and there, there's a lot to learn, but you know about from South Korea about combining grassroots mobilization with you know how to use the internet and social media. Of course, it helps in South Korea, which I think has the largest broadband penetration in the world. If I'm you know, it's if it's not number one, it's number one or number two in terms of how many people have access. I think it's about 85 percent in South Korea at this moment. And that's far, far higher than, than the United States. Problem with like, you know, until like a couple of years ago, I mean, I think uh, Bernie Sanders is getting a better understanding of what's going on with North Korea. But <clears throat> excuse me, at the moment. A lot of leading Democrats may have good policies in terms of health care and, you know, curbing the power of banks in the U.S. and, you know, progressive policies. But when it comes to foreign policy, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, not very not very good. And until recently, you know, uh, Sanders was was, you know, kind of. Uh, I mean, 2017, I was really shocked to hear him, you know, supporting Trump's hard line on North Korea, for example. Uh, I think he's changed a bit since then and saw that Trump's hard line was, you know, was actually very dangerous. But a lot of the you know, Democratic Party now in the House, the new, the new incoming um, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, is, is kind of a hawk on North Korea. And he's going to go after Trump policy on North Korea from the right. And so I think there's a lot of things about American progressive policies that probably puzzle a lot of people in Asia, uh, you know, to see this kind of, you know, Cold War thinking that's still prevalent, even though the Cold War is long gone. It's very interesting to me where China can be very nationalist and anti-American, but all the kids, hey, I can bump into Bolshe Lai's son at Harvard or, you know, uh, Xi Jinping's kids. Uh, and I'm wondering, for the next class of Asian leaders, is there a real tension between those who have come to see globalization or neoliberalism or American-led hegemony uh, within their own countries as problematic versus the sort of uh, the global elites of those countries? Is there a tension between those who want to uh, continue on um, the path that we're on versus those who come from maybe more humble backgrounds or are disconnected from centers of power like Harvard and Yale or DC and want to take their countries in very different directions. Children of the South Korean elite come to these universities here in America and Harvard, Stanford, et cetera. And they're often, you know, the children of these, the corporate elite, the, the J-ball. And there's, there's kind of a way that there's a sort of integration of the Korean ruling class with the American ruling class. And they work, you know, hand in hand at these think tanks when they're young, and then they proceed and they move into poly, policy positions. And all, you know, while they're working at, while they're being trained at Harvard and they're working in, as interns and then work, you know, uh, staff at these think tanks, they're being imbued with, you know, the American line, the American way of thinking, the American way of looking at its overseas empire, and they become, they become part of the ruling class. And I think it's really hard to break that. 
And, you know, this is the way the ruling class reproduces itself. And it reproduces, you know, it's the rare student among those kids who breaks away and says, this is all bullshit and we want to do something different. You know, we want to support the labor movement and we want to support the peace movement. I want to, you know, support what's happening on Jeju or Okinawa. That's, 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 that's very rare. Uh, and, you know, and the kids, people that, you know, come from backgrounds where their, you know, their parents are activists. Um, you know, I, I think they have fewer opportunities to, to study abroad and they're not part of the ruling circles. It is something that, you know, goes way back and particularly in a place like Korea where the relationships at all levels of society and, and, and different um, institutions, you know, the military, academia, I mean, there's just all this, um, you know, decades of relationships between Americans and Koreans. It goes back so far, goes back so long. And, and um, you know, so, so they become very comfortable with each other. And I think that's, that, that, that's part of the tension. I mean, you, you now have coming of age in South Korea with, you know, Moon, uh, Moon Jae-in and his, you know, the people that work for him and his government, you know, all came of age in the 80s when they didn't see the U.S. as, you know, a, a, a real uh, supporter of democracy because it wasn't. And they, were, they felt, many of them felt betrayed and many of them felt, they, many of them opposed the, the authoritarian governments in South Korea that were backed by the U.S. So that's, you know, that's where they come from. And then, you know, I've heard people at the think tanks like, uh, you know, Michael Green of the CSIS, who's, is, you know, is the Japan chair and he's their big expert on Japan and, and Korea. Like I've, and he was in the Bush administration for a while. He was working on Korea issues. And I've heard him say publicly, deride, uh, the, you know, the people around Moon, you know, as being, you know, leftists or even communists. Um, I heard him in one session, you know, sort of laughing about he, he when he was in the Bush administration, he worked with a lot of these. Uh, he worked with the Nomo, Nomo Hyun government, which was, you know, had kind of a left take. Uh, you know, it was seen as sort of a leftist government by the U.S. And he said, like, you know, he would say, well, Nomo Hyun wasn't that bad. But but boy, the people that work for him, we call them the Taliban and the Blue House. I mean, it's just really derisive and arrogant way of looking at, you know, looking at another country because. People like him, they want to they want to just work with the people that are going to be pro-U.S., not independent, not wanting an independent Korea. They want Korea to be integrated with the U.S. empire. That's how they see it. And so, you know, that that's a lot of what the tension is between now, now between, you know, U.S. Um, government and military industrial complex and, you know, the South Korean government. I mean, you have people, you know, from really coming at this issue from really different places. And, and I think, you know, there's growing tension between, you know, the U.S., you know, sort of what I call the, you know, the military industrial think tanks, which are part of the decision making of, of the Trump administration and, and, and the foreign policy establishment. And they're really at odds with, with Moon and his, and his government about the pace of inter-Korean uh, reconciliation and, you know, the issue of sanctions. 
the issue of you know joint military exercises and so on. And I think that tension is going to grow. 